Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. In this podcast, we explore some of the little-known legends, stories, places, and rumors about the great Buckeye State. We're your hosts, Mike and Dan. So hide the keys, lock the doors, and turn down the lights. The next episode is about to begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. My name is Mike, and the guy sitting across from me over there is named Dan. And in today's episode, we're going to travel Ohio's back roads to the cities of Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Dayton. We're going to visit the gray states of some famous people buried in those cities. Hey, Dan. Hey, Mike. This really sounds like fun. I can't wait to hear about all these famous people buried here in Ohio. Great. There are a lot of famous grave sites in Ohio, probably way more than many people realize. Awesome. Let's get into it. Okay. So as you know, and maybe even some of our listeners may know, I've spent the last 10 years visiting cemeteries throughout Ohio. I photographed the grave sites of famous and notable people buried in these cemeteries. I write a short biography about these individuals and then post all of them on fa- on a Facebook page called Too Late for Autographs. I love that page. I've seen it a lot. I'm even a member of the page. Well, thanks for that, Dan. I appreciate it. And for any of our listeners who might follow the page, I would also like to thank you for that as well. Okay, so there are four cemeteries in Ohio that I like to call the Big Four. Greenlawn Cemetery in Columbus, Woodland Cemetery in Dayton, Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland, and Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati. These four cemeteries contain the final resting places of some of the most famous people in the world. And what I thought we would do is break this down by cemetery and talk about each one and the famous individuals buried there. Keep in mind that in this episode, I'm just going to talk about the most famous residents of each cemetery. Maybe in future episodes, we can talk about the lesser known yet still notable people buried in these four cemeteries. For example, buried in Lakeview Cemetery up in Cleveland is a man who threw the first forward pass in pro football history, as well as the man who invented the modern golf ball and the man who invented the Salisbury steak. So we'll do an episode just on Lakeview later, and we'll talk about these types of people. Well, you know, we'll do that with Spring Grove, Green Lawn, and Woodland as well. That sounds great. I'm looking forward to that. Great. So today, let's start with Spring Grove Cemetery in Cincinnati. It's the third largest cemetery in the United States after Calverton National Cemetery and the Abraham Lincoln National Cemetery. It's a whopping 733 acres. It's a U.S. National Historic Landmark, and it opened in 1845. There are some very famous people buried there, so let's start with two gentlemen named William Proctor and James Gamble. Oh, of Procter & Gamble fame. Of course, the Procter & Gamble Company, the multinational consumer goods corporation headquartered in Cincinnati. It was founded in 1837 by William Procter and James Gamble. I tried to look up their net worth and found several different numbers. 
and I'd rather not give out the wrong number, so let's just say they're worth billions. And you know what they sell, like everything, healthcare products, cleaning products, personal hygiene products, you know, products like Febreze, CoverGirl, Crest, Ivory Soap, Clairol, Braun, you know, the list goes on and on. And I am certainly familiar with the Febreze product. You are. <laughs> you care Absolutely. to share? <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, so here's an interesting fact about Procter & Gamble. Real quick, as the Civil War approached, the two men were worried that the war would interrupt their supply of a certain kind of southern pine sap they used to make rosin, which was a key ingredient in several of their products. So they purchased a huge quantity of this pine, of this pine sap before the war began. This move allowed them to get a lucrative contract to provide numerous products for the Union Army. Other suppliers couldn't supply the, the, their customers because they couldn't get the supplies up from the South. Procter & Gamble, knowing that the war was coming, you know, kind of ordered the stuff in advance, and that way they always had some ready, and they were able to keep a continuous supply going and, and fill their orders, and so they ended up with this contract with the Union Army. That helped them a lot. So Proctor died at the age of 82 in 1884, and if you want to visit his grave, he's in section 47. Gamble died at the age of 88 in 1891. He's in section 13. The next individual we're going to mention is Bernard Kroger, of course, Kroger Grocery Stores. So here's a few tidbits about Kroger. Kroger was among the first to open a bakery to supply bread for his stores. He purchased a butchering and packing facility to supply meats. Kroger was among the first to hire female cashiers and to own his own fleet of trucks for supplying his stores instead of using local truckers. He became the first grocery chain to monitor product quality and to test foods offered to his customers, and also the first to have a store surrounded on all four sides by parking lots. That was like a genius move. People could just pull up to the building, park on any side, and they could walk right in. Kroger became the first grocer in the U.S. to test an electronic scanner, the first to formalize consumer research. And some of the info I'm about to talk about is from a few years ago, so it may not be completely accurate today, but it gives you an idea of what Kroger, by the numbers at least, is all about. In the U.S., Kroger is the largest supermarket chain by revenue. It's the second largest general retailer and the 23rd largest company in the country. It's the fifth largest retailer in the world. Kroger operates over 2,700 stores it maintains markets in 35 states, and it's located throughout the Midwestern and Southern United States. The company employs nearly 450,000 people. A little fun info about Bernard Kroger. He sold his interest in the company in 1928. At that time, he had more than 5,000 stores. The first thing he did was go honeymooning with his 36-year-old bride. Remember, he was 68. He gave each of his seven children a million bucks, and he retired to Cape Cod. At the time of his death in 1938, at the age of 78, his personal wealth was estimated at 20 million, which is like about 319 million today. If you'd like to visit his grave, he's located in section 111, section 111, really tall monument. You can't miss it. Wow. Very interesting. I remember uh, Kroger stores growing up. Wow. I had absolutely no idea that company was so enormous. That sounds like a, a genius guy who would come up with all these innovations. And if he hired 450,000 employees, that company has to be massive. Yeah, it's, it's really big. Like I said, it's worth billions. I saw several different numbers on, on its worth, so I didn't want to say a number because it 
seemed like, you know, it was this number here, it was this number on another site. So I just know he's worth, he was worth billions. The company's worth billions. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. So the last person we're going to talk about that's buried in Spring Grove is Salmon Chase, or Salmon Chase, maybe I should say. He's best remembered as a secretary of the treasury under Abraham Lincoln from 1864 to 1873, but he was also an Ohio governor and a U.S. senator. But as secretary of the treasury under Lincoln, Chase designed and introduced the country's first paper currency, the Greenback Demand Note, I think it was called, which was printed in 1861 and 1862. He was instrumental in placing the phrase in God we trust on United States coins in 1864. And here's the thing about Chase. He had an overwhelming and obsessive desire for the U.S. presidency. He tried to run for it multiple times, and which were all failures, by the way. And throughout his term as Treasury Secretary, Chase exploited his position to build up political support for a run at the presidency in 1864. So he took advantage of the situation by placing his own face on a variety of U.S. paper currency, starting with the $1 bill, so that people would recognize him. So that's what he tried to do to, to you know, get himself known and get, get his name out there to run for the presidency in 1864. To honor Chase for introducing the modern system of banknotes, he was depicted on the $10,000 bill, which was printed between 1928 and, and 1946. He's buried in Section 30, and like Kroger's marker, you can't miss it. It's a tall, square, box-like container-looking thing. It's, it's, it's huge. Wow, very cool. And so do you know if that's how the, the term greenbacks originated? I, you know, I was wondering about that. I didn't have time to research that, but I, I think it's probably connected. I think that was like the first currency, so I'm sure there's some kind of connection there. And what a brilliant move to put his face on currency if you're running for <laughs> yep. political office. Yep, yep. Yep, it was a good move. It didn't work, but it was a good move. <laughs> that was good. What a smart yeah, move. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to Woodland Cemetery in Dayton. Woodland was opened in 1842, and it's 200 acres in size. The most famous name in this cemetery is Wright, as in the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur. Of course, as we all learned in school, they were the first to achieve flight in 1903 at Kitty Hawk. They were actually awarded the patent for it in 1906. They are buried in section 101 in a family plot with their parents, their two sisters, and a brother. One of those sisters, Ida, and the brother Otis were twins. The other sister, Catherine, was very involved with managing the Wright brothers' business affairs and taking care of them personally, as neither brother ever married and they lived together. Interestingly, the Wright brothers attended high school, but neither of them received a diploma or attended college. Yeah, the Wrights are a fantastic story in their own right. And for as brilliant of inventors as they were, they were equally poor businessmen. Now, if you look at that time frame, they didn't get a patent until 1906. And it was said that they just drove into town and they came upon the first patent office they could find. They did no research on it. And so they just hopped on the first train that they could and asked him to apply for the patent. And this would really be the basis of their future battles with people that were inventing the airplane at the same time. Yeah, there was a big controversy over whether they were actually the first ones to do it or not. Isn't there, aren't there other people that claim to have done it before them or absolutely. before they got their patent at least? Yeah, absolutely. Not only in America, but over in Europe as well. A yeah. lot of people try to claim that they were the first to fly. But I think it's generally considered the Wright brothers were the first to achieve powered flight. Right, right. And like anything else, there's that controversy like we just said. But yeah, I, I think that they were, they were the first as well. So let's uh, move on to a guy named Paul Dunbar. 
He was a prolific African-American poet, novelist, and playwright. He became the first African-American poet to earn national distinction. He was born in 1872, and sadly, he died of tuberculosis at the very young age of 33 in 1909. He wrote his first poem at the age of six, and he gave his first public recital at the age of nine. He published his first poems at the age of 16. He wrote a dozen books of poetry, four books of short stories, four novels, lyrics for a musical, and a play. The New York Times called him a true singer of the people, white or black. Numerous schools and places have been named in his honor, including parks, libraries, hotels, and hospitals. Paul Dunbar is buried in the same section as the Wright Brothers, Section 101. His marker is a large boulder with a bronze plaque placed on its side. Wow, absolutely fascinating. So not only do you have the leaders of industry, you have innovators, and you have this guy, a poet, an author, and sounds like an all-around really talented guy. Yeah, he was a great writer. So the final resting place we're going to talk about in Woodland is Irma Bombeck. She was a newspaper columnist who achieved great popularity humorizing suburban home life from the mid-1960s until the late 1990s. She wrote over 4,000 newspaper columns, using her keen sense of humor to chronicle the ordinary life of Midwestern suburban housewives. Her column was read twice weekly by 30 million readers of 900 newspapers in in the U.S. and Canada. Irma's first journalistic work was interviewing actress Shirley Temple. She published 15 books, mostly bestsellers. Irma wrote for Good Housekeeping Magazine, Reader's Digest, Family Circle, Red Book, McCall's, and even Teen Magazine. She also participated on ABC's Good Morning America from 1975 until 1986. She was diagnosed with kidney disease and endured daily dialysis. In 1996, she received a kidney transplant but died from complications of the operation. She was 69 years old. A 29,000-pound rock is the monument for her grave. It was brought by a flatbed truck from a home she had in Arizona. She's buried in Section 201, and you can't miss finding her grave. Just look for the 29,000-pound rock. And I think that's kind of in line with her personality. She yeah. was really funny, and I remember reading Irma Bombeck. And yeah. Didn't she have a book, Life is a Bowl of Cherries? Yeah, something like that. She had a lot of books, so yeah, that was probably one of them. Yeah, I think that's one of her more yeah. more popular ones, but how cool was it? I, it would be interesting to see in her, uh, her last will and testament that she's requesting that a 29,000-pound rock be transported from Arizona all the way to the cemetery just for her grave marker. Yeah, kind yeah. of a cool, cool final marker. Yeah, it's a really nice, it's, it's a really cool rock. I, I've seen it in person. It's, it's amazing. Very cool. All right, so let's move on to our third of the f- big four cemeteries that we've been talking about. And that would be Greenlawn Cemetery in Columbus. That cemetery opened in 1849. It's 360 acres in size, which makes it Ohio's second largest cemetery. Lots of interesting people buried here. And again, we're going to, Mention a few right now, but at some point we'll go back and do an episode just on Greenlawn and discuss all the notable people buried there in much more detail. So let's start with Eddie Rickenbacker. Oh, yeah, I know who Eddie Rickenbacker uh, was. He was the World War I flying ace and a race car driver. Correct. Perhaps the most famous person buried here. Born in 1890, and as you mentioned, he was a World War I flying ace. As America's top fighter pilot during World War I, he had 26 confirmed aerial victories, the most of any United States combat pilot. 
He was also known as the Ace of Aces because of this. His many military medals included the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross, and many more civilian and military awards and honors. Between 1910 and 1916, Rickenbacker was a race car driver. He competed in five Indy 500s, but never won. His best finish was in 1914 when he finished 10th. In 1927, Rickenbacker bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which he operated for nearly a decade and a half, overseeing many improvements to the facility. He guided it through the Great Depression and in, and in World War II. After the 1941 race, Rickenbacker closed the Speedway due to the war. Among other things, holding the race would have been a waste of valuable gasoline and other fuels needed for the war effort. In 1945, Rickenbacker sold the racetrack. He died in 1973 at the age of 82. He's buried in Section 58 right off the road. You can see his monument as you're driving up to it. It's a tall white marker. You can't miss it. Little known fact about Rickenbacker is that he eluded death on multiple occasions. Our listeners should check out our partner, Paul and Steve, and their podcast, their Ohio Mystery Podcast episode that they did not too long ago. They, talk, they talked about Rickenbacker and his, his escapes from death multiple times. Wow, and those guys had to be incredibly brave, including Rickenbacker, and I think that there's an Air Force base named after him just south of Columbus. Yeah, there is. That's that's for exactly right. I forgot about that. You're right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. A, what, a, what a cool guy. Yeah, it, he was a, had a great career, great life, actually. So we're going to move on to a young man named Cromwell Dixon. Like Rickenbacker, Dixon earned his fame as an early pioneer of flight. He was a nationally recognized aviation hero known as Airboy, bird boy and the boy aviator dixon was a child prodigy actually when he was 14 he was dubbed the youngest aeronaut in the world when he won the first prize in the international balloon race in st louis in 1911 dixon was 19 years old three things happened to him that year one he was issued a pilot's license becoming the youngest licensed pilot in the nation two he became the first person to fly an airplane across the continental divide and three, while flying at the Washington State Fair in Spokane, Dixon's plane turned on its side to a rap. And three, while flying at the Washington State Fair in Spokane, Dixon's plane turned on its side due to a rapid change in the air current. He fell 100 feet to his death in a rocky ravine. He was found crushed under the engine of the plane. Witnesses said his last words as he was falling through the sky were, "Here I go." But at least he died doing what he loved. Dixon is buried in Section 68. His grave bears a plaque that reads, Cromwell Dixon, world's youngest aviator, loved by all. Wow, what a cool story. And, you know, to kind of put this in perspective, this was only eight years after the Wright brothers achieved flight for the first time and only five years after they received their first patent. The technology and equipment were still in the earliest stages, so he had to be a very brave young man. I agree, exactly. So the last famous gravesite we're going to talk about at Greenlawn is that of a couple named Max and Irma. I'm not sure how to say their last name, Dan. Maybe you can help me. It's either Visosnik or it could be Visonstik. And I'm sure you'll know the, I'm hoping you'll know the correct pronunciation. Um, you know who I'm talking about? I absolutely do. Would that be of Max and Irma fame of Max and Irma's restaurants? Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's right. In 1958, Max and Irma purchased a pub named Slim's that was located in the historic German village neighborhood of Columbus. They operated it for 14 years before selling it in 1972. Uh, additional locations were open, but the new management never turned a profit until the mid-1980s. 
By 2008, Max and Irma's had a total of 106 locations in 10 states. That same year, the economy fell into a recession and it hit Max and Irma's hard. And the management began to close some of their restaurants, describing them as underperforming. In 2008, the company filed for bankruptcy. There are still several locations around, and the restaurant is now owned by Glacier Restaurant Group, which operates 10 Max and Irma's locations in Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. As a matter of fact, I ate, I, uh, ate at one not too long ago. Yeah, still really good food. Great burger. Irma died on May 11th, 1977 at the age of 69. Max passed away on March 18th, 1995. He was 84. They're buried together side by side in Section 18 of Greenlawn Cemetery. Yeah, and you know what's kind of neat about this is you talk about these different stories. It's interesting to hear how these famous people are buried here, and you would kind of had no idea. Let's just say you go to a Max and Irma's restaurant, you have no idea what happened to the founders of these restaurants, right. and now we know. Yeah, and they were very popular in, in Columbus when they were uh, when they owned that restaurant, so people know who they were. Okay, so that brings us to our last cemetery, Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. Yeah, oh yeah, I love that place. I've been there a lot of times myself taking photos and shooting videos. Yep, I've been there multiple, multiple times, and the number of famous and notable people buried there is amazing. Lakeview opened in 1869 and sits on 285 acres. It's actually located in three different cities, Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, and East Cleveland. And we have an actual former president of the United States buried there, James Garfield. He is one of five U.S. presidents buried in Ohio, as a matter of fact. He rests in an amazing mausoleum in Section 15. Garfield isn't that well known as far as presidents go, but he did have an amazing career. I'm just going to rattle off all this stuff quickly and we'll go from there. Garfield was born in 1831 in a log cabin in Moreland Hills, Ohio, near Cleveland. He was a member of the Ohio State Senate, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, and a member of the U.S. Senate. He was the 20th president of the United States, serving only 200 days between March 4, 1881 and September 19, 1881. He was the third U.S. president to die in office and the second to be assassinated following Abraham Lincoln. And as far as the assassination goes, he was shot in the back on July 2, 1881 at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C. by Charles J. Goudier, a deranged political office seeker. Garfield lived for 80 days after he was shot. He became increasingly ill over a period of several weeks due to the infection, which caused his heart to weaken. He remained bedridden in the White House with fever and extreme pain. He eventually suffered a massive heart attack following blood poisoning and pneumonia. Alexander Graham Bell invented a metal detector to try to find the location of the bullet in his body, but the machine kept malfunctioning, apparently due to the metal framework of the bed Garfield was laying on. Because of the rarity of the metal bed frames at the time, the cause of the malfunction was not discovered. It is believed that the constant probing of the bullet wound with unsterile instruments by the doctors led to blood poisoning and eventually death. So here's a few Garfield tidbits. Really interesting stuff. Garfield was the last of seven presidents born in a log cabin. He was the first left-handed president. He could simultaneously write in Greek with one hand and Latin in the other. Garfield was one of three presidents in 1881 alone. Only two times in American history have there been three presidents in the same year. The first time was in 1841. 
second time in 1881, the second time in 1881, Hayes relinquished the office to Garfield. And then when Garfield died later that year, Chester Arthur became president. Garfield was the first president to campaign in multiple languages. He is the only person in American history to be a U.S. representative, a Senate elect, and a president elect all at the same time. He was the poorest man to have become president of the United States. Garfield's mother was the first president's mother to attend her son's inauguration. In the 80 days between the shooting and his death, Garfield performed only one official act, the signing of an extradition paper. James Garfield's spine, showing the bullet hole, has been preserved and is kept by the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C. He just made one executive order in his role of president. That was to grant government workers the day of May 30th off as a non-working day, a day to decorate and honor the graves of those who died fighting in the Civil War. Now we know it is Memorial Day. Garfield died just two months shy of his 50th birthday. His casket is draped with an American flag, and it's the only U.S. president casket on full display. Wow, what an interesting story. Now, if you do go to Lakeview Cemetery, you can visit that his memorial today. Right. That's You can go down and see that casket. I think it's currently under renovation. It is closed right now. I don't know when they're reopening. But yeah, currently right now as we record this podcast, it is closed. Yeah. And also, if you're going to go, there's also a Garfield Museum not far from there. If you get a chance, you can go through his home. Right. And there's a lot of artifacts and relics. Yeah. And just what a fascinating guy. Yeah, I was not. I was there not too long ago. It's a great, great thing to do if you're looking for something to do one day. Go, visit, go visit the house in Menor. Very cool. So let's move on to a guy named Elliot Ness, the leader of the famous team of law enforcement agents known as the Untouchables. They were known for bringing down gangster Al Capone during the Prohibition era of the late 1920s and early 1930s in Chicago. But as far as, as far as his time in Cleveland, in 1935, the city hired Ness as the city's safety director, which put him in charge of both the police and fire departments. He cleaned out police corruption, which may have been the worst in the country at the time, and he modernized the fire department. Ness was also safety director at the time of several grisly murders that occurred in Cleveland during 19, between 1935 and 1938. His failure to apprehend one of the nation's first serial killers, the so-called Mad Butcher of Cleveland, or Kingsbury Run, not only frustrated Ness, it also brought him under public fire. Ness resigned the position in 1942. So there's some trivia here that's some interesting stuff about Ness. He is said to have inspired the comic strip detective Dick Tracy. He was never an FBI agent. In 1933, he actually applied to become an FBI agent, but was turned down in part over salary differences and his strong ties to the press. Elliot Ness died on May 16, 1957, at the age of 54. After being cremated, his ashes sat in the care of his daughter-in-law for decades before a memorial service was held in 1997. His ashes, along with his sons and third wife's, were spread over Wade Lake in Lakeview Cemetery near Section 7. Nearby is a memorial monument dedicated to Elliot Ness. Wow, what a cool story. And I think uh, Elliot Ness didn't have political aspirations. I think he ran for the mayor he of ran Cleveland. Ran for mayor and was defeated, yes. I right. think he was involved in, with a car wreck where he was said to have fled the scene. Yeah, was he maybe drunk or something at the I time? I think, yeah, yeah, I think that's the understanding. But wow, I had no idea that background. Yeah, he, he did a lot too. He's, and, you know, a lot of people give him credit for 
bringing down Capone, but some people say he really didn't play that significant of a role. He was involved, but it was really other people that brought uh, Capone down in Chicago. Another interesting story to read if somebody is interested in the history of Elliot Ness. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so that brings us to our final famous Ohio grave, and that would be John D. Rockefeller, often referred to as John D. He's considered the wealthiest American of all time and the richest person in modern history. And he got that way because he was co-founder and president of the Standard Oil Company. John D. was born in 1839. He got into the oil business in the early 1860s. In 1863, he opened his first refinery, and within two years, it was the largest in the area. In 1870, he incorporated the Standard Oil Company, which immediately prospered. During his working life, Rockefeller had accumulated close to $1.5 billion in wealth. That's about $410 billion in today's dollars. This was probably the greatest amount of wealth that any private citizen has ever been able to accumulate by his own efforts. His net worth would easily place him as the wealthiest known person in recent history. No other American fortune, including those of Bill Gates or Elon Musk, would ever even come close. John D. retired in 1895 at the age of 56. He gave away more than $550 million during his life to various causes. He passed away in 1937 at the age of 98. He's buried in Section 10, and his 70-foot obelisk grave marker is the tallest in the cemetery. Interesting story about Rockefeller. He had a younger brother named Frank who worked for John D. and Standard Oil for a while. He was actually the vice president. During this time, Frank had additional business interests, and John D. would often argue with Frank's other business partners, and that would frustrate Frank. There was also probably some jealousy issues going on here with Frank. Um, he started to dislike John D. because of his tremendous wealth. In 1870, Frank joined with his father-in-law to form Pioneer Oil Works, which would become a rival to John's Standard Oil Company. But of course, Pioneer Oil Works was quickly bought out by Standard Oil, which probably frustrated Frank even more. And in truth, Frank was not a real good businessman. He was constantly in bankruptcy, and John, despite their differences, would always bail him out. This only increased Frank's dislike for John, you know, having to be bailed out by his brother. Frank's dislike for John grew to the point where he would time and time again speak and even testify in court against him and Standard Oil. He would often say that he was Frank Rockefeller stockman, not Frank Rockefeller, brother of John D. So when Frank died in 1917, he chose to be buried outside of the Rockefeller family plot. Frank's family is buried in the same section as John D, section 10, but several hundred yards east of where John and the other Rockefeller family members are buried. Wow, what a fantastic story. You've really covered a lot there, and I really enjoyed that part about Rockefeller. Did you ever hear the story? I don't know if I have this correct, but I think it was rumored that he had a payphone in his house and he would make the guest use the payphone if they needed to make a call. I've never heard that story. That's crazy. That is crazy. Now that's really odd because he would give away dimes to kids. Did you ever hear that story? I never heard that story. Yeah. If you go to his gravesite, you might see dimes on his actual stone marker. And that's because he would always give kids, he would be driving his car and kids would run up to his car and he would hand them dimes. Wow. So that's, uh, he was always giving away money. Now I know that he had an elaborate program where he funded a lot of libraries. Yeah. 
And he was also very instrumental in, in forwarding education and providing yeah. money for education. He, so, he, he did a lot of stuff. Yeah, he did a lot of stuff behind the scenes that probably yeah. nobody knew about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But what um, a fascinating guy. So we'll discuss more people in all four of these cemeteries. We'll discuss a lot more uh, of these famous and notable people buried in Green Lawn, in Spring Grove, in Lakeview, and in Woodland. Wow, great job, Mike. I really enjoyed those stories. That was fantastic. Thank yeah, you. Great. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to ohiomysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner, Mike, can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That was another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Stay tuned for more. might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loop serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.